paced out. What did we talk about this week on, on the podcast? You know, <laughs> we kind of focused pretty solidly on uh, one thing. Yeah, I would say this one's a little different than, than the other ones. And we focused specifically on one man. And that man is Yellowstone Kelly. Yellow, but Luther, also, Yellowstone, Sage, start over. Uh, Luther, Robach, Sage, Robach, Sears, <laughs> J.C. Penney, Amway, DeVos, <laughs> Yellowstone, <laughs> Yellowstone, Kelly. And so, um, in, an, in an interesting format, we do some actual on-site, uh, live, plain air recordings out of the comfort of the studio. We really pushed our boundaries this time, and uh, sure. So you're gonna hear us what wandering around out in the weeds. Yeah. So what we did is on a. I believe it was a July summer day. Yeah, Friday. It was a Friday. We went up to the Yellowstone Kelly gravesite, and mm-hmm. I had the task cam with me, and we just sort of recorded our stream of consciousness as we sort of walked through mm-hmm. the site, if yeah. you will, saying all manner of just very cynical and yeah. angry things. Yeah, but sounding sounding real smart. Uh, but Pretty uh, peeved with the whole situation. I really... Going in with a really bad attitude. Yeah. I came across as someone who had a lot of knowledge about this situation. <laughs> um, I but, was worse. <laughs> I, I was at least able to edit my, my stuff. I left your stuff in. Yeah, thanks. That's fine. So I, I just threw you under the uh, proverbial Greyhound bus. If I you like it under this bus. No, it's <laughs> it's an interesting it's an interesting experience because not only do we have some, you know, on-site, uh, you can hear us experience the Yellowstone Kelly monument, but you, we also then uh, spoke with Kevin from the uh, Western Heritage Center, Kevin Koistra. Koistra. Uh, spelled nothing like it sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, K-E-V-I-N. Yep. That's exactly Oh, right. I, it's with an E, isn't it? Yeah. Kevin. 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 Two E's. That's uh, wrong. So then we get his take on the situation, and... Because he was very involved with the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. He was involved with the... Uh, Con- well, some of the content on the plaques, I would say. Yeah. Um, but he sort of explains his rationale and reasoning, and um, sort of the whole gist of the podcast is kind of going through that. So you have um, our mutual, um, I wouldn't call it disdain, but it's not really a positive image of the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's able to not say the other side, but just sort of go through his thinking on why he did what yeah. he did. And we're not expecting to resolve the whole issue, but more or less hoping to keep it on people's minds. Yeah, absolutely. That it should be something you should be aware of and um, strive to be more culturally inclusive with your city. You bet. Because, you know, rising tide. Exactly. Um, Lots of boats. And that is a pun for the city of Billings because we used to be an inland sea, so. That's true. If there were boats back then, it would raise them all together. I don't know where I was going with that, but... I do. I want to say Pangea. Probably I was going to end up in Pangea. I think we need to stop plate tectonics. You think so? Yep, I think we should petition the government. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it's a, it's a cool experience because you can... Uh, well, I'm just going to speak for myself here. You can, you can listen to me say stuff and then learn about what I was saying mm-hmm. after the fact... So I get to shoot my mouth off and then actually learn things about what I'm saying, um, and it's uh, it's a it's a good experience. And uh, as, as said a number of times in the episode, warts and all, you plenty get to of that. Be with us while we experience. <laughs> I am one big walking wart. <laughs> I mean, metaphorically, like not. We don't need to see the doctor or anything. I mean, it's not not that I know of. HPV. He told me to go home. <laughs> and here we are. And here we are. <laughs> Give the episode a listen. Uh, if you like it and want to get more involved, go see Kevin at the Western Heritage Center. You should anyway. You should anyway. Even if you think the episode sucks. Uh, go take a walk at Yellowstone, Kelly, and then and yep. see what you think. Uh, let us know what you think. and uh, I don't know. There you go. Absolutely. In November of 2018, current Billings, Montana Mayor Bill Cole was speaking of economic opportunity and the necessity of preserving and promoting history. During that presentation, he holds up a book, The History of Montana Illustrated, 1885, a book written four years before Montana was even a state. 
At 1,300 pages, that book detailed the history of pre-statehood Montana and, according to Mayor Cole, showed that people, quote, valued history and valued their family history. As people who valued their history pushed west, wiping out a history of indigenous people they encountered, a choice and a decision was made. Or was it? Preserving the rendition of the intrepid homesteader going into the unknown, taming a wild land, braving unpredictable weather, and carving out a piece of the west all for themselves. While no one doubts that some of the settlers that moved across the West were good, honest, intrepid people, focusing solely on that narrative misses the complete and nuanced narrative that could and should be told. It seems that far too often that preserving and telling the version of history that was tidy and neat was far too appealing and easy to pass up. Bridging the gap between the past and the present has never been easy, nor should it be but wholly ignoring giant chunks of it and glorifying others is a difficult subject to traverse. So here goes my best effort in doing so. I'm working on an episode for Yellowstone Kelly and why that deserved as much acclaim and attention and such a focal point in the city when there are so much, so many different stories and there's such a narrative that can be told up there that isn't just, here's this one guy. So those are rivers. Right? Um, maybe? Well, some of them stop pretty abruptly. I don't remember there being one in the southwest corner right there, but I could be wrong. Yellowstone. Yeah. Missouri. Mm-hmm. Well, there it is. So we got Bill and Ann Cole right there. And Beth and Scott Stevenson in honor of Bill and Ann Cole. Heart and Soul Run. Yeah. City of Billings, Billings Trail Net. Phillips 66. And good old Harvey Singh. Yep. Phillips 66 and Singh contracting the same size. Those are big ass signs. We've got a, a groaning flag. Big rusted piece of metal. It says Yellowstone Kelly, interpretive site, 1849 to 1928. A lot of coals on here. Yeah. Tom There's a lot of companies. Vision Net. American Legion. The Charles M. Bear Family Trust. Gary and Kathy Breakup. Yeah. Big Sky Economic Development and its Board of Directors. We're the only people here. Literally. Though it is lunchtime on a Friday. It's one on Friday. Who was Luther Sage Yellowstone? Yellowstone Kelly. Kelly. He was a guy with a dead critter on his head. Sure was. Luther Sage Kelly, or Yellowstone Kelly as he's better known by, was born in Geneva, New York on July 27, 1849. At the age of 15, Kelly enlisted with the Union Army during the Civil War. Joining towards the end of the conflict, Kelly saw no major action but was required to remain enlisted for three more years. After his enlistment, Kelly stayed west doing various jobs, working for the government, delivering mail in hostile areas, and one job as a woodhawk, a job in which requires you to chop down cottonwoods for use in the steamships going up the Yellowstone. A very well-educated man for the time, Kelly got his foot in the door with a prominent general at the time, Nelson Miles, who was running a hard winter campaign against the Sioux and Cheyenne to push the back onto the reservation in 1876 and 1877. Kelly would end up working with the War Department in Chicago, deployed to the Philippines during the Spanish-American War and landing in Arizona for the final year of his career in 1909, retiring to Paradise, California, dying in 1928. Before his death in 1928, he negotiated a deal with the Montana Historical Society, and the Commercial Club of Billings, now known as the Chamber of Commerce, to have his body transferred to Billings where it would get, quote, a significant monument built in his honor. He was to be buried on a bluff on top of the rim rocks overlooking the Yellowstone Valley and was laid to rest there on June 26, 1929. The monument never approached, quote, significant monument status and in the next years faded into obscurity until recently when the city of Billings, along with the Chamber of Commerce, put about $500,000 in the Yellowstone Kelly gravesite. Kelly's gravesite sits on what many Native American people in the region consider sacred land and is just as much, 
if not more important to the history of the valley as Luther Sage Kelly. The narrative of the intrepid frontiersmen is just a snippet of the actual history of the Yellowstone region has to offer. And far too often, the most deserving, interesting, and worthy people in the region are just a footnote in the narrative in the stories that people tell. So, this show is an attempt to bring more light to these people that are and have been left out of the public story for far too long. With a big assist from Kevin Cloistra, we try to get more perspective on the history of the Yellowstone Valley. Kevin Cloistra, Executive Director, Western Heritage Center. Well, I think what happened with the Yellowstone Kelly site is that it became an outgrowth of the whole trail system, Mm -hmm. the Heritage Trail system, the Marathon Loop. You know, I was starting at the the Mary Lake Trail, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, over the last 25 years that I've been here. I mean, the the bike trails have taken off. And the way I see the Yellowstone Kelly site is, uh, you know, Yellowstone Kelly could have gone anywhere. He even says that it could have been buried at, uh, you know, Arlington National Cemetery, because, like, obviously, he was a war vet of three different campaigns and stuff. But, you know, working along the trail system, I mean, you know, a new outhouse, or not outhouse, but a bathroom near the picnic area, the new trails connecting, and the Yellowstone Kelly site was always a sore spot for even me, personally. I, I'm Whatever your beliefs are for Kelly... It, mm-hmm it looked bad. Yeah. Like I had yeah. some friends from New York come up about five years ago and they were like, where are all the car bodies? You know I mean? You didn't even know it was a graveyard. Mm-hmm. And so what I do like about it is it's part of this larger, broader picture to start representing. And, and I hear what you're saying and it's absolutely dead on. There's so many stories in this valley. You know, when we do our walking tours up there, we, we talk about Kelly because obviously the site has been redone and it's remade and it's much more attractive and it's it's respectful because it's actually it's what in sense the city and the state had promised him back in the 20s sure. uh, it wasn't done you know I, mean, I have a letter from mrs kelly with me here in 1936 where she was already complaining about the state of the cemetery the grave really oh yeah because when the when the the commercial club or the chamber took it on they were going to actually, at one point, they were talking about some giant monument up there, which, thank goodness, that didn't happen. That time over, you know, the, the hundred, almost 100 years it took to get them a gravestone. I mean, really, that's what, there was no grave up there. To me, it was a concrete a marble, crypt, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think, like I said, I had friends who went up there and they were looked at it like, why would anybody want to go here for any reason? So I think it gave us an opportunity along the Heritage Trail system to start developing these places Mm -hmm. so you know out of the kelly uh experience have been contacts with the tribes um you know uh bill snell and folks like that about how to get the tribes engaged in this storytelling as we move around the trail Mm -hmm. so for example right now the boot hill cemetery there's interest in that Mm -hmm. they're doing ground penetrating radar it's like the next story but you would hope with consultation with, like, for example, the Crow tribe, that you could be able to share stories like Places of the Skull or the Sacrifice Cliff. You know what I mean? These are these are fixtures in our history. Yeah. And like I said, when I do tours up there, that's what I talk about. Because, again, I, I, I give you one example. is like the uh, Colson Town Cemetery, which is called Boot Hill Cemetery, which by the 1920s, the Eastern Montana pioneers hated the name. They actually protested it because they thought it was like a a tourism thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like not everybody who died there died with their boots on. Mm -hmm. You know, there were children who died and then a mother died there. You know what I mean? But for whatever reason, that that name, that moniker was attached to it at some point, like late 1890s. By then, that graveyard was already in complete disrepair. Now, and you know where that is, up by Applebee's right now. Mm Mm-hmm. The town of Colson itself was down by the river, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a mile and a half from the center of downtown Billings. Enough that obviously when Billings was established in 1882, the town of Colson was disregarded and basically abandoned. So by the you know late 1880s, it was hardly anything in Colson. But in the period that Colson existed from 1877 to 1882, the people had a decision where to bury their dead. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence, but they buried their dead just below the place of the skulls. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a relationship there. And I, I'm not the first person to say that. Stu Connor, who worked with the Crow Tribe during the 1960s, uh, said the same thing. That basically, the place of the skulls, uh, as I understand the story, you know, again, from places like uh, Joe Medicine Crow or Mardell Plainfeather, 
uh, was there was a smallpox epidemic basically where the fairgrounds is. It could have been even as late as 1857. Uh, the story of the uh, Sacrifice Cliff comes out of that mm-hmm. particular uh, point in time also. But the, the people who died there, you know, they left the bones, they left the bodies sometimes behind. And then over the next 25 years, people collected, I don't know who collected, but they brought the bones and put them up on the shelf just above where Boot Hill would be put. Okay. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I think that's very interesting that, mm-hmm. like, the Colson folks recognize the significance. Where, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, going back to uh, the Kelly site, uh, we were aware that the site, uh, not only uh, obviously on the east end has the, the Colson Town Cemetery, but obviously the place of the skulls, uh, you know, and um, that, that's uh, recognized when you go to the site now. It wasn't in the past, sure. you know what I mean? It was, it was like, sort of implied. You know, the, there was Kelly's grave, and that's why it should be important. But really, the, all of the high ground in this area, um, you know, are probably you know, fasting beds, vision questing areas and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Obviously across the river, you have the four dances, vision questing site, which is a very important site. Um, so, you know, in, in, in my, my conception, working with an incredible team of about 20 people, uh, for one, I think there had to be some kind of arch or gateway to let people know there was a cemetery there. Do you know what I mean? Like Kelly's, Kelly's grave. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because in the past, it was just, it was a disaster. You know what I mean? It was, there was no acknowledgement. So when you come up to the site itself, the first panel you read is the fact that this is a sacred site to Native peoples. You know what I mean? It's there, first yeah. panel. Yes, Kelly's grave is here, but this is a bigger picture right here, mm-hmm. that on the east end of Swords Rimrock Park is the place of the skulls. Oh, just beyond that is the Colson Sound Town, Sound Town Cemetery. So, you know, right away I wanted to establish kind of what anthropologists call like liminality. You know, you get out of your car, you're confronted with some kind of gate almost. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're confronted with what I almost like. Like I love liminality because like uh, they use it classically in uh, like churches. Yeah. The, the notion when you go to church on Sunday, you dress up, you change your clothing, you go to the church, you it's open event, the door, yeah. there are other people, they're dressed like you. What do they do? There's uh, ushers, guides that take you to your seats, they give you a bulletin that tells you when to sit, when to stand. There's all of those things that happen in a transitional state when you go to a site. So that's how I viewed this site, sure. is that you had to have some kind of mark that gated it off, that showed you were entering a site, in the hopes that if people recognized it more as a sacred site in the broad sense, mm-hmm. that there would be less vandalism, that people wouldn't be disrespectful. Because in the past, it was terrible. Sure. They were I always tagging the site, you yeah. know what I mean? And uh, nobody really realized the bigger picture. So now, in all fairness, how, how much can you get a convey in you know, 200 words? You know what I'm saying? Sure. Mm, yeah. So you're really trying to like put a lot in there, and you're hoping that people read that. Um, you know, the site itself, obviously... Um, is a vast improvement along that whole trail system. And like I said, as the trail is developed, you know, at Colson and places like that, it's my hope that whoever is engaged in that work, if they reach out to us, mm-hmm. we will help guide that process. You know what I mean? We'll, yes. you know, um, you know we've, we have good contacts and stuff like that. Uh, one of the more challenging things, and th- this is really, uh, you know, it's, it's, a difficult topic too, you know, like a more challenging uh, the process or something with a project. Let's let's go to Yellowstone Kelly because that has some, you know, that's a that's a tough one because of course Yellowstone Kelly is also associated with being an Indian scout during the war, you know, the Indian Wars and particularly the Nez Perce campaign, and also uh, having had um, an encounter and then um, the killing of two Lakota Indians, you know, so he has that package, Mm -hmm. which isn't necessarily, it's not a good package to have. You know what I mean? I mean, he himself, even when, when he killed these two uh, Lakotas, uh, when he was delivering mail said, you know, this, this, this event had very, very little fruitfulness to me. You know what I mean? He he did not enjoy the experience, which very puts him very different from somebody like Buffalo Bill Cody, who amplified those kind of things. Yeah. You know, but or Teddy uh, Roosevelt, or you know, or Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> somebody like that. Yeah, somebody who wanted to like, you yeah, know, 
glory. Um, but, but I guess this is the, it's important, and I don't know how to quite um, address it, but for example, uh, with the Kelly site, we, you know, uh, Bill Cole, uh, now Mayor Cole, you know, he, he addressed the Crow tribe. He addressed the council and said, you know, what what would your participation be? You know what I mean? What, what would you like? We want you to know about this, right? Um, I approached uh, individuals who are Crow historians, and, and they were... Um, Resistant, and I completely understand why. Because the tendency um, is to have, if you interview one crow historian, to have that person be the representative voice of all crow, and that's always a sticky point. Yeah, that's... you know what I mean. I mean, the crow do have designated uh, preservation officers, obviously, that we hope to engage with. Um, but you're asking a lot by coming to from the reservation to hear. Um, like I said, you know, Lawrence Flatlip, who I worked with for several years, actually always had one good piece of advice for me, is that he always reference who you heard it from. Because, because from my perspective as an outsider, there's almost lineages of stories within, you know, mm-hmm. whether I worked with the Paiute or the Blackfeet or the Cheyenne, it depends on which lineage of mm-hmm. stories you learn from. There's not like, you know, the Bible is like a Bible, and it's still open for interpretation. But I found that when I worked with, for example, the Northern Cheyenne, I could work with, you know, Mr. Talbot or Mr. Elkshoulder, and they had a lineage of stories. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is that's one lineage. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, whether it's on the Crow Reservation, too, whether it's Joe Medicine Crow, who we lean on quite a bit because we have his oral histories in our collections, or um, some of the other people we've uh, worked with from the Crow. You know, we have about 80 interviews from the Crow. Um, that are part of our permanent collections. Uh, it's difficult to get somebody, especially with a controversial topic or a person potentially, like mm-hmm. a Yellowstone Kelly, mm-hmm. to come out and say, yes, I'll be the spokesperson. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think the one thing that we you can address is to do it early. So if there is a project like the Colson Park project, you would hope whoever's instigating it yeah. is working with the tribe very early on because I think the tendency uh, historically is to go to the tribe or go to a tribal historian as the project's already halfway done and mm-hmm. say, how can we squeeze you in? Kind of, You know what I mean? Yeah, which and might so, be the case with the Colson Park project because I've not heard of any interaction no, no, and you know there's there's an opportunity there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whether it's uh, talking about the Elk River or, mm-hmm. you know, right across the way is the Four Dances, one of the most important sites for the Crow. You yeah. know what I mean? Those stories have been written too, so you can rely in some ways on written texts and cite those texts and references. Like I said, you know, when I talk about uh, Sacrifice Cliff, I tend to lean on uh, Joe Madison Crow because we have the narrative text. Or, or uh, Mardell Plainfeather, because her lineage of stories come from Samuel Plainfeather, or, or Lawrence Flatlip, who has shared stories, and we've written them down. So, again, you have to reference just like you would any historic text and then go from there. But you're right. I mean, you have to have, you have to make the decision early on. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, obviously, you know, when, when it comes to telling the story of Sacrifice Cliff, for one, you have to find out if it's a story that wants to be told or Place of the Skulls. Is it a story that wants to be shared? I like how they just glaze over burial place of many historic peoples and is considered hallowed ground by native tribes. Yep. There are lots of knowledge on exactly which native tribes and what they consider hallowed. Yep. But they just, nah, that's fine. They don't matter. Yeah. Also in the vicinity, the peoples of Colson, a short-lived frontier settlement, established their graveyard, which now is Boot Hill Cemetery. Which is down over by Applebee's. It is. Fittingly. Yep. As, as it should be. Buried with their baby back, baby back, baby back ribs. So up here in ant piles, sometimes you can see um, blue beads, which were used in burial ceremonies. Oh. For the Crow tribe. Gotcha. Mostly it was the Crow tribe. I think there was a little northern Cheyenne around here. Did they um, bury them above, like on stilts? I, you know, I don't know for sure. I think so, but, like, lots of blue beads floating around in the dirt, and Hans will push them out of their little pile, and I don't touch those. I mean, purposely, when I talked in that text panel at the Yellowstone Kelly site, I left it vague, because the reason my rationale was in 1877 and 1882, the people of Colson who lived along the river, talked about going up 
to the shale butte ribs, buttes, and and stealing and pot hunting. You know what I mean? And stealing mm-hmm. the beads. Yeah. It was nothing to them in the 1870s to go up and recreationally take beads from under a, you know, a wrapped body in a tree. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still very careful about that. I, I found a, a, a projectile point um, north of Shepherd, and it's fantastic, beautiful projectile point. I uh, posted it on my Facebook page, and I said, you know, 2,000 years ago, someone was hunting for their family. Yeah. You know? And I said, I left the point where I found it, mm-hmm. which is ironic because I haven't been able to refine it now. <laughs> uh, I've gone up there like three times to look at it. I'm like, damn, you know, oh, the, yeah. the landscape's so vast. Sure. You know yeah. what I mean? But but it was interesting how many people posted on my site even and said, oh my God, did you keep it? Yeah. You know, or, or did you donate it to a museum? Or, you know what I mean? There yeah. is that, that tendency for us to... To collect and squirrel it away somehow, but yeah, uh, I guess yeah. that'd be the the question, the narrative. Um, just growing up, um, just everything being compartmentalized in a very neat, nice, tidy story that you could go back and Grandpa can sit down and wax poetic about it. Um, when in actuality, the history of it is so not arduous, but it's yeah. very shape shifting, like you said. It's not it's not easily told in a, in a very concise story, which I think a lot of people are convinced that's what tours want to see. Yeah. Um, I don't know if going forward, I guess the question would be what going forward would you like to see in like little historical markers around here um, that would convey the vastness and the diversity of the story that is around here and get them interested in that yeah, and that's a want, great, want them to go down that, that path. That's a great question because you're right. I mean, people... Like, you know, obviously all of us, we're, we're here doing a podcast. That's obviously a great way to do it, mm-hmm. to have a deeper discussion about these these projects or these people or things like that. But uh, And like on Facebook, I really love it when, I mean, I don't like all the political crap for the most part. I, You know what I mean? But yeah. a lot of the stuff that people post, I'll read it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's really cool. I, they're probably usually friends of mine and they probably have something interesting that they've read and they want to share it. That's a great way to expand. You know, what's interesting, like in a museum, is that often our, what we do is very clipped. You know what I mean? I mean, we talk about text panels and we talk about, like, for example, I'm developing this Hazel Hunkins uh, traveling show right now. And it's like, literally, we're like, I'm, I, you know, I'm of the mindset as a, you know, a verbose pe- person who's act, have an academic background mm-hmm. to like tell the whole story, but you can't, you have to convey it in 200 words, yeah, which is like insane. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And your only hope when you do that in a museum or in a traveling exhibit is that you spark somebody's interest. There it is. That's all you can do. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So, so if, if there's a mechanism in the exhibit to say, you know, to learn forward, you know, I mean, we're doing it right now. We have a really complex project. We have the Vietnam Voices we're working on, mm-hmm. and we've taken all that incredible oral histories the Gazette did, mm-hmm. 80 interviews back in about four years ago. And I always felt like maybe there's a, a place for us to, to re-engage that project, to kind of get it right up on the forefront again, you know. So, so what we're doing, and... and Bless her heart, but uh, Lauren Hunley, our community historian, weighed herself, you know, down with all of these interviews and and tried to get a sense of you know the feeling she was getting from these interviews. And then, you know, of course, like I said, the uh, the introduction tip clips are very you know, two hundred fifty words. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you know, try to synthesize the Vietnam War in three hundred words. That's, <laughs> yeah. what, that's what she's doing. You know. Yeah. But what I like is that she has created this giant supersized panel with the picture of each person who was interviewed and how to access their interview. That's cool. That's all you can hope for. You know what I mean? You can hope that people get excited about like, God, I want to learn more about Vietnam. I want to read, sit down and read, uh, you know, Michael Caputo's book, or I want to listen to this particular interview from this person. That That's, that's all you're trying to do. You're trying to create mm-hmm. a leap. You know, you're hoping that even if somebody doesn't do that, that, that they've been, you know, influenced or, or shaped or changed potentially, you know what I mean, by a particular mm-hmm. topic, you know. So um, like another example would be um, we have one called, uh, it's on, on the Not In Our Town movement, mm-hmm. which was here in Billings, uh, 2003, 2004, no, 93, 94, 93, I'm sorry, yeah. in 1993. So we had students about 20 years after it happened interview the people who had participated in it. So, for example, high school students who had never heard of it 
from West High, interviewed like Chuck Tooley, who wasn't mayor at the time, but was engaged, Margie McDonald, people like that. So the students learn firsthand what the experience was like, what they were fighting against and stuff like that. And we created a traveling exhibit called Billings Fights Against Discrimination, you know, about that particular event itself. And we've heard great things from people who come to the museum. I don't know how much further it goes. Mm -hmm. Do they go home and go, damn it, that town did it. You know what I mean? I don't know. You're just kind of conveying the story and laying out there. um, I suppose without, I mean, obviously we all have our own biases and our own opinions and surfacing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, But you're trying to just convey kind of a story. Like I said, the students interviewed these particular people. This is what they said. And then present the uh, newspaper articles or some of the Ku Klux Klan flyers that people put on windows. Margie McDonald's archives were amazing. So we were able to scan the whole collection. You know, again, that, that, that piece travels. It was at the public library, which I thought was pretty brave of them. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's gone to schools. I mean, um, but uh, you know, how, how much is done beyond that? We're, we're not necessarily organizing a, a group of people. You know what I mean? That 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 could be a way to go for a museum. I, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To actively engage in the community in particular things. Well, I think what we do is tends to be a little more passive, probably. Here's the uh, wow. That's Jesus. a different gravestone than I've seen. Freaking Christ! It's huge. About four foot wide by six feet tall ish. Yeah. Laying flat on the ground, big old wreath on it. I liked to travel amid ever-changing scenes. Okay. That's pretty much what everybody does all day. Mm-hmm. Um, keep and... No, keep... Not standing. Keep not standing, fixed, and not... Noted? Rooted. Rooted. Jesus. Keep not standing, fixed and rooted, briskly venture, briskly roam. Yeah, his history was very interesting because, you know, like I'm looking at Tim Lehman's stuff, Dr. Lehman from Rocky Mountain College recently on Facebook. He's doing a lot of research up in Helen. He's finding all these fantastic quotes from the 1880s yeah. that like like are contemporary. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, They're about right now. Yeah, I, I do remember uh, there is an inter- a quote in the, um, the, the Billings Fights Against Discrimination. It was, it was two panels that were created called Fear or Caution. And, and the basic premise of this these two giant panels which like i said were just recently on display at the museum were um people react to things that they consider potentially menacing you know sometimes under the guise of caution Mm -hmm. later on when you look at it you realize it was out of fear so again i'm crossing two exhibits now but hazel hunkins and this discrimination both use the same quote um in 1908 uh the billings high school uh person who was second in class, his name was Ray Van Hooten, did a whole speech, a two-page speech, you can read it in the coyote, about how immigration is destroying this country and how Poles, Italians, Greeks, Jews, and the Chinese are destroying America. And there was a need to go back to the day, and he used this phrase, to our Puritan forefathers. So that's that's the power to me of history a lot of times, because when you look at a 1908 quote and you're hearing it and one, you know, you're, Uh you're seeing this, but then you're hearing some of the same type of rhetoric, you know, um, you know, I've actually had friends who are, were Italian who, who seem to be, um, a little unsympathetic, you know, to immigration. And I said, oh, that's interesting, because here's this fantastic quote mm-hmm. you know, by a guy who said the same thing, and uh-huh. it's about Italians. Uh-huh. You know what yep, I mean? Absolutely. So that, that that's some of the shaping power of the narrative of history. You know what I mean? You don't have to, like, you just, you just lay it out there for somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I've noticed, like, people who were coming into the museum were photographing those panels, because mm-hmm. there was discrimination of against Mormons. There was a huge thing about, uh, you know, how the Mormons were going to destroy America. Um, there was another one where the Ku Klux Klan in 1920 went to the Broadview, or, yeah, Broadview Church and paid the minister and thanked him for all his efforts on behalf of the Aryan nation. Yeah, it was fascinating. <laughs> like, like you know, but, but you lay those kind of things out there and you let people just settle. But like I said, there were people in the museum photographing the panels, wow. which I thought was interesting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They were going to take it somewhere. <laughs> they were going to share that story. That went you know on I mean? Facebook. 
yeah. you know, Instagram or something. Yeah, I mean, there's and that's just reaching out for yeah. something you can see. Yeah. Right, right. But, uh, Weird story. Yeah, my grandma had a torch that her granddad, she was out of Harden, one of like 12, 11 kids. She had a torch in her basement that was used for the KKK really? that she brought down to the Western Heritage Museum. I and she said, it wasn't, about, it wasn't really about racism. We just, we just hated Catholics. <laughs> no, actually, it's funny because... I, 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 you know, it's like, so, that's great, Grandma. So <laughs> Good I was, Lord. I, I didn't hold the torch or uh-huh. fire it up yesterday, but I actually had it in my hand. It's like, yeah, it looks like yeah, a mace It has almost. a little red canister yep. on it and a little wick. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's an amazing piece of history. You yeah, know what I mean? it is. And we actually, in the Billings Gazette, I think in like 1924, 28, there is a full page ad from the Ku Klux Klan that says just what you just said. Mm-hmm. We're, and we're, no, it says we're not, oh, it says we're, we're not anti Catholic. We just like Protestants. <laughs> we're not anti Negro. We just like, European white people. It's like what it says. The whole sure. it's a full page piece. But the frightening thing of that is there are literally like eight tenets, the cardinal rules of the clan or something. The first four or five are like, okay. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we we believe in public schools. Yeah. We believe in like states' rights. You know what I mean? Like, and then all of a sudden you start reading on and you get to yeah. the part where like Wow. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden it takes this incredible shift. You know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, God, who was it? Um, uh, who was the head of the Church Universal Triumphant? Mary Claire Prophet? Prophet, yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing her one time. And of course, I love science and I love biology and stuff. And she was talking about, you know, the, the facts of evolution are in the ground. You could see them. There are fossils on the hills. And, yeah. you know, I'm like, wow, you know. Yeah, and then, sure. like, all of a sudden, she did this incredible right hand turn and went, but nobody talks about the alien invasion of 6,000 years ago. Smoke bomb. Yeah, but the clan thing had that feel. Well, yeah. Like, you read the first three or four, you're like, okay. You yeah. know, and then all of a sudden, yeah, it's like, yeah. Whew, big <laughs> yeah. shift, you know? So, well, thank you for that. That was an awesome donation, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, she just brought I, that I, up. I think she said it was used in um, in Laurel. Is that possible? It's, yeah, so they used to... Square Butte and Laurel. You, yeah, they used the to square have rallies. Butte. Yeah, if you drive by on, on I-90, if you look off to the right, you see the big... That's right. Butte, and, but you can see a cross that was up there, and they would go and meet up there and have their meetings and, I don't know, burn a cross every yeah. so often or whatever they... Yeah, it was Horrible like thing between, that they were doing. right between Park City, closer to Park City. Yeah. yeah it was a Laurel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I always wanted to go up there and see if there <laughs> are artifacts or remnants of that. Uh, I'm know, sure so there's something up there. Contact with the Europeans introduced the horse and new weapons, but also brought oppression, disease, and fixed boundaries, all of which undermined the nomadic way of life. Undermined is a good way to put it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's subtle. You, one could call it a holocaust. <laughs> a little bit. But that's a little bit less of Eradication? Yeah, sure. Um, Decimation of... Uh, but it was going to happen anyway, all right? That's true. Yeah, sure. it was, it's bound to happen. Gravant carrying goods across the prairie on a trevois. The contemporary Gravant are enrolled members of the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation in northern Montana. I didn't know they were French. That's cool. Oh, I say gross venture. Yep. <laughs> Gross Ventry. Where the bison roamed. The American bison was a lifeline for the native peoples. When Yellowstone Kelly first arrived in Montana in 1868, he observes, one could ride north for hundreds of miles and never be out of sight of buffaloes. The eradication of the bison corresponded with the forced relocations of native peoples to reservations. I think that was a coincidence. Now, this picture shows a whole bunch of people just jumping off trains, shooting bison God. right in the face. Actually, buffalo. He witnessed... Right? These if, would be actual buffalo. Yeah, I guess so. Or the American bison. Yeah. Yellowstone Kelly witnessed one of the last great gatherings of bison. That doesn't mean they all just got together for partying, does it? <laughs> no. I think that means they just killed the last of them. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's space for extra placards to the right of this one, this last one. It's interesting that they only have the American flag flying. You'd think it'd be more um, inclusive. They have multiple flagpoles. Do you think so? Maybe. I don't know. I, Maybe just a suggestion. Let's drop it in the box there. Yeah. That doesn't exist yeah, over there. Suggestion box that they're not open to. Yeah, I don't know. Would you add anything else to this? Yeah, I mean, I just. I think it's a travesty that the fact that this is a sacred hill for Native Americans is completely overlooked. 
um, what, there's a sentence among all the... Yeah, there's a couple placards, but... Glory of Yellowstone Kelly and... All those nice nomadic people just wandering around without a thing to do. Yeah. Enjoying themselves. And then they encountered Europeans and for some reason something went wrong. Something happened. Something about guns and... Yeah. You know, it's interesting when we tell our story, you know... I have a very simple thing, a, a way of thinking of what we do at the Western Heritage Center. And, and I like I always have found parallels with the chamber mm-hmm. is that really all we do, all my job is what people ask what I do. I say I make people feel more at home, period. Yeah. That's all. You know what I mean? Like if you're a visitor to Billings and – you want to learn about Billings, you can come to the Western Heritage Center or you can do like a walking tour or you can hear one of our programs or something mm-hmm. and you know a little bit more about our town. So I always feel like it relieves anxiety at some level and not not bad anxiety, just anxiety, you know. Mm-hmm. And the same with people who live in our town, people who come on a walking tour and go, wow, I never knew that. That yeah. is really cool. So it's like this very basic premise that we we provide, you know, and the chamber does too. The chamber, like I always feel like we give the maps of the past that go, that bring you to the present. You know what I mean? Warts and all. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're mm-hmm. going to talk about, I mean, it's weird in a museum when you get excited because somebody brought a Ku Klux Klan torch in. <laughs> but frankly, sometimes an artifact will lend yeah. itself to the stories that are challenge yeah you know what i mean and uh you know in the same i always feel like the chamber gives out the maps of the present to try to entice people to stay for the future Mm -hmm. so i always felt like the chamber and us are very parallel we end up working a lot with the chamber because i think also that uh and maybe it's more of a billings central montana south central montana or eastern montana but history is hot Mm you know i mean like like you know like all the projects we get involved with yellowstone kelly you know, somebody approaches us, we have the expertise to do the research or uh, the Billings Depot, you know, whether it's uh, to do interpretive panels along mm-hmm. the fence line there or uh, the rotary. We did the history of Billings Rotary, which I have not seen on a bestseller list yet. Oh, that's weird. No, no. Uh, <laughs> my own daughter hasn't read the book yet. So, <laughs> which I'm like, I have like four copies at home. If you want a copy, please right. let I'd me know. I'd be interested probably. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll send a, we'll send a link, we'll put a link on that. Yeah, we can. We'll put a link in the show notes for the rotary. Oh my God, I got a whole case. (laughs) What I want to say is the primary author, I think it's... I think it's good. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a pretty narrow topic, but it's still <laughs> very, good. Very know? niche. That's very niche. niche. Yeah, that's that's right. okay. um, what are some of the people that you would like to see more focus on that you wish people knew more about, like the Hazel Higgins? Okay. And uh, just do, I'm not yeah. asking you to go off on, on an hour tangent. Just, sure. Just a couple, just like good okay. examples of I'll, people. I'll do, I'll do the broad and a uh, uh, narrow one. Uh, broadly, here we are on the south side of Billings. Is that secret information? No. No, no okay. So we're on the <laughs> south side of Billings. And, um, you know, in our collections, for example, I always give this example, we have a 1,000 photographs of downtown Billings, 950 north of the tracks, 50 south. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the question was why? Mm-hmm. Well, because Billings, when 1882 came around, Billings was created. The railroad put the railroad in the middle of town and created two towns. They created a north side and they created a south side. The north side got the depot, which lended itself to the development of the north side, the city hall, the courthouse, the churches. Mm-hmm. The south side, which if you think about the south side, and I'm not, I don't want to be disparaging of the mm-hmm. south side, but um, if you think about the town now split in half by the railroad, then split it again. So you have four quadrants, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you put the smellier stuff in town? You put it downwind in that one, mm-hmm. what's, what would be here, the southeast quadrant. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. So like I said, north side gets all the civic, all the churches, the big stuff. The south side gets the sugar beet factory, followed by the oil and gas, followed by the stockyards, and in some ways even the sewage treatment plant, on and on. So mm-hmm. the south side developed so differently and so uniquely that we had this fantastic project. Uh, we have actually a traveling exhibit called the South Siders now where we identified the need to find out more about the people who live here on the south side, their stories. The Sugar Bee Factory, for example, when it opened in 1906, they recruited almost 500 Germans from Russia out of Nebraska really, to come here. 
Yeah, and so the Germans from Russia, if you're not familiar with it, I, know, I don't want to take up another hour, but the Germans from Russia were basically, they kind of remind me of Hutterites in some ways, but the Russian government invited German agriculturists to live in the Black Sea and Volga regions of Russia okay. in, by the early 1800s. Three generations later, the, Germ the Russian government says, you know, now we want you to join the army. And they had a systematic uh, process of discrimination and even the burning of their villages. <laughs> they start dispersing by the 1880s. Most of them, a lot of them come to the United States. Mm -hmm. Nebraska, North Dakota, Colorado, South Dakota, obviously, and Montana. And because they're agriculturalists and the sugar beet industry has taken off, it's a perfect fit. Yeah. So at one point, we had three German-speaking churches on the south side. No kidding. Yeah, the, the Lutheran, the, I can't remember the names offhand, but the three German-speaking churches, huge German-from-Russian population kind of in the South Park area. Now, they stay because they're not going back to anywhere. You know what I mean? They're like yeah. a lot of immigrants. They move on, like the Dutch who came here. They they withered under the heat in the 20s, and they mm -hmm. took off for like Whidbey Island in Washington. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but what happened in the 1920s is the sugar bean industry continued to grow. There was a need for immigrant populations. And so there was a, a steady hand of Mexican and Hispanic populations that moved uh, to the crop rotations like every four months or so. And what happened, they would come into the Billings area, but the sugar factory really needed people year-round whether to work in the factory or maybe thinning uh, in the spring. So the Billings Sugar Factory built a huge housing complex on the west side of the sugar factory, a Spanish-style colonia hmm. for the Mexican and Hispanic populations in the 20s. There's your other 500. Wow. So the south side has this incredible German from Russian population and this incredible Hispanic uh, Mexican population that is derived from this weird... Because they put a railroad through the middle of town and, sure. uh, you know, the sugar factories on the south side. Uh -huh. So we went out and we started recording these interviews, uh, getting photographs from people, not only from Hispanic and from a German from Russia, but there was an African-American neighborhood on the south side, a Chinese colony, a Japanese colony, and other, the, the seedier side of town, the area of prostitution uh, on Minnesota Avenue. So it was really fun because we collected so much and brought into our collections and then built the Southsiders exhibit. So that's a great example. Mm -hmm. and, and it's out there and people are learning about it. We just had the exhibit out at Orchard School for their anniversary. And the kids were pumped yeah. because they recognized things like the sugar factory and the photos and stuff like that. The more specific example would be, um, you know, we, we do programs on uh, amazing women. You know, so we do a program like that has... Uh, Gwendolyn Hayes, the poet from Billings, who wrote about the homesteader women's experience. Mm -hmm. Incredible poetry. Like, like you want to weep when you read her poems from the 20s about what the homestead women experience. Uh, Pretty Shield, the Crow Medicine Woman. Uh, Ethel Hayes, the syndicated cartoonist from Billings, who was one of the highest paid cartoonists in the country. And sometimes I've seen that she was uh, credited... Um, in some ways, with the the flapper style, she had a uh, like she had a cartoon called Flapper Fanny that was syndicated uh -huh. across the country. <laughs> She's a Billings High School grad. Yeah, I love the stories that are local mm -hmm. that people don't know. I mean, there's all those the Carolyn Lockhart, you know, from the Lockhart Ranch. You know, uh, if you're familiar with the Bighorn Canyon and stuff, mm -hmm. another incredible story. You know, and, and like any of these good stories, like Lockhart, if you're not familiar with her. Um, John uh, Clayton out of Red Lodge wrote a fantastic book. I mean, this woman, the more I learned about Carolyn Lockhart, the less I liked her. <laughs> but Elizabeth at work, yeah. the more she read, the more she liked her. <laughs> so, you know, it tells you about our personalities, yeah, you know. Sure. I'm like, oh, my God, she wanted to kill the rancher neighbor? You know, like, <laughs> she's like, oh, she's awesome, you know. <laughs> so, um, so there's so many of these kind of stories that are out sure. there. And that, that I, it was one of the coolest parts of our job is that I almost feel like sometimes – and we talk about this at work all the time. It's like almost like a resurrection. Like we have this opportunity. Somebody says, oh, my God, have you heard about Carolyn Lockhart or Hazel Hunkins, who very few people had heard of eight, nine years ago. And now we're able to now there's a statewide curriculum on her. The high school oh, cool. where kids are learning about her. There's going to be this traveling exhibit. C-SPAN has talked about her. The Gallery for Outstanding Montanans Corps group learned about her. It's cool. These are the stories. 
You know, yeah. like instead of Ollie Warren, the prostitute, I'm sorry, she's great, but sure. how about Hazel Hunkins, the suffragist, Ethel Haynes, the syndicated cartoonist, Pretty Shield, the medicine woman, all of these more positive characters, again, like Carolyn Lockhart, I love, but they're they're not free of warts. No. You know well, what I mean? Yeah. And fortunately, a lot of them left diaries, so we know how, <laughs> how wow, worthy yeah. they were. <laughs> yes, yes, they definitely were. So. That's cool, yeah. The, well, that, and, you know, just these things can spark somebody. Listen. Yeah. All right, she sounds interesting. I'd like to look her up. Yeah, and, and you know there's going to be more people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it comes from every different angle. We hear about... Every year we hear about somebody or a family donates a collection or, or we get a, a Ku Klux Klan mm-hmm. torch. You know what I mean? It builds upon this whole kind of just giant trove of, you know, material that we try to wade through and try to share, you know what I mean, with the yeah. public and stuff. So so it is really fun, you know. I guess. It's exhausting for all of us, too. But uh. Uh, For the past few weeks, I've fucked around with the ending of the show, not really knowing how to end it. Maybe I should end with a stupid inspirational saying or convey some uh, bullshit wish that magically overnight the right context will be inserted at the Yellowstone Kelly gravesite and, uh, and all will be well. I, I keep thinking in my mind, what are the next steps? And I immediately just go to, really? Um, how long is it going to take people to recognize that a person requested or received permission to be buried on some of the most sacred Native American sites in the region? And mostly everybody was, and still are, all right with it. As I said in the beginning of this episode, bridging the gap from the the past to the present is never easy. And I think that you need to be willing, and and I think you need willing and patient participants on both sides of the story. Kevin and his team did did an awesome job with what they had to try to draw people into the history that makes up the Yellowstone Kelly's gravesite and the surrounding area. And, and ultimately, I think it's up to the citizens of the city of Billings to make sure that the site continues to evolve. Personally, I think the opportunity is still there. Um, if you truly care enough to do something about it. This episode was produced, written, recorded by uh, myself, Joe Stockberger, and Joe Stout. Thank you again to Kevin Koistra of the Western Heritage Center for all of your help. Thank you for listening.